The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Hi, welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. This is episode 39 in the book of Hebrews titled, A Kingdom That Cannot Be Shaken, where we discuss Hebrews chapter 12, verses 25 through 29. I'm Joel Harford, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, we're still going through chapter 12, and the author has given some pretty big warnings to the the Hebrews. Uh, He talked about Mount Sinai and Mount Zion in the last podcast, and talked about just um, how the mountain we're approaching is a different kind of mountain than the Old Covenant brought. Here he gives another another warning, and he talks about a kingdom that cannot be shaken versus a kingdom that can be shaken. And so can you give us just a brief overview of what he's going to do in this section and how he ties the warning in? Sure. He's finishing up uh, this section. It's a marvelous section, but as with any uh, persuasions in the Bible, uh, we've got you know positive and negative inducements. We've got things that we are to fear and flee, and we've got things that we are to be drawn to and hope for and be attracted to, and they all tend in the same direction um, for, for uh, Christians. We are to flee the wrath to come and flee to the welcoming arms of grace and mercy and love. And So you have that positive and negative side. And so here we have the image, the terrifying image of Mount Sinai with all of its wrath and all of its judgments and that uh, law, that old covenant cannot save. The blood of bulls and goats cannot remove sin. All the law can do is point out uh, your failures really ultimately for you personally. It'll tell you how to, how to live, but then we won't live it. We don't keep the, keep the law. And so there's terror involved in that. Uh, conversely, we've got the beauty of Mount, uh, of the heavenly Mount Zion, uh, the heavenly Jerusalem, which is so attractive and appealing. And so he's going to finish up in the spirit, really, of the whole epistle as an epistle of warning, warning them not to refuse him who speaks. Well, for the sake of our audience, I'm going to read verses 25 through 29. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, the things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So my first question relates to verse 25. And what is is he referring to when he says, See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned on earth, and then he gives a much less argument, and I want to ask about that in a minute, but what does he mean by the, um, for if they did not escape phrase? Yeah, that's a powerful image here, really. Again, the author has in mind that moment in Sinai where God descended in fire on the mountain and he made the ground shake. There's no doubt that that's in his mind here, but he's talking about a yet future descending of God in fire, a yet future shaking. Um, and we'll talk about that. But uh, So he's definitely hearkening back to Mount Sinai. And so they were terrified when they heard the voice of God speaking uh, the words of the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God. 
who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods beside me. And so you have uh, this terrifying voice that was so, I guess, loud and so terrifying that the people begged that they not hear this voice ever again because they were terrified of God. And they asked Moses to go up and hear God speak. And so he was the mediator, the prophet, you know, the one who heard the word of God and then came and delivered them to the people. And so uh, there is that backdrop of the one who speaks. And so there is this sense of the voice uh, coming down from Mount Sinai. Uh, but what he's saying here is now, it's a how much more argument. We'll get to that. But he's saying, he's speaking about... Um, about not refusing the one who is speaking now through the new covenant, the Holy Spirit, who is speaking now through the gospel invitation. Don't refuse him. So the idea here, if he said they did not escape, you, you get the feeling that you know, we're talking about the om, omnipresent God. Where can I flee from your spirit? Where can I go from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I go down to the depths, you're there. If I go on the far side of the sea, even there. I mean, God is everywhere. And also in the prophet Amos, he said, if they go up to the mountains, from there I'll bring them down. If they go down to the bottom of the sea, there I'll command the sea serpent to bite them. God is omnipresent, and if he's omnipresent uh, and he's against you, it's terrifying. So there's no escaping this omnipresent God. And the escaping has to do with rebels who are defying him and are disobeying, doing what they want to do. So I think we easily could go to the golden calf, where right away they exchange the glory of God for an image. And God, you know, slaughtered some of them. There were some that fell that very day uh, because of the, they didn't escape uh, when they refused. I'm not sure if it's that account, but I know the text says in one of them, those mm -hmm. similar accounts, that 23,000 fell in a yeah. single day. Yeah. yeah, I mean, if God is against you, who could be for you? I mean, just think of it that way. Romans 8 is that if God is for us, who could be against us? But if the opposite is true, then... You know, it's just terrifying. So the idea here is fear. The author is definitely going after fear. He's also going after the, the beautiful enticement of the heavenly Zion, no doubt about it. But he reverts here to the standard kind of warning and fear. So fear refusing the one who is speaking. And ultimately, if you consider the, uh, the annihilation in the desert, not mm -hmm. one except for the, the faithful in Joshua and, and Caleb, not a single one escaped and made it to the promised land. Yeah, I mean, God knows, knows them all, knows them by name. Nothing escapes his notice. He is uh, perfectly wise. And uh, again, uh, it's just a terrifying image here of refusing the God who speaks. And so this, this is an inducement here to not refuse, but to obey. Um, and so he's making this, this argument. I know we've talked about this in prior podcasts, especially in chapters three and four, but just rehash again this idea of him who is speaking. Like the mm -hmm. author portrays the Holy Spirit as, as still speaking this word. And, and I would argue if, if you're doing proper exegesis, he's, he's still speaking today mm -hmm. this same word of the new covenant. What does this teach us about the Holy Spirit's voice through the scriptures to us today and, and to them at that time? Yeah, I mean, I think you, you did allude to it in Hebrews 3 where it says, So as the Holy Spirit says... Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And he's quoting Psalm 95, but the Spirit is speaking it today. Um, in this case, uh, it's a how much more argument. If they did not escape the one who spoke on earth, how much uh, less will we if we escape? Uh, how much less will we if we refuse the one who speaks from heaven? So you've got this earth versus heaven feeling. So the author, I think, here is, is thinking of the old covenant 
and the Mosaic covenant, the Mosaic law, as earthly, fundamentally bound to the earth, to the old order. And the new covenant, the promises of the gospel, and really of Jesus as heavenly, uh, coming from heaven. So Jesus is the one who came down from heaven. He makes this argument in John's gospel where he deals with people who are offended that he was claiming to be the son of God. And he reaches for Psalm 82 where it says, I said you are gods. Now, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, then how much less he who descended from heaven, uh, etc. So he is the one who came from heaven to earth to do the will of God. So I, I think he is the one who is speaking from heaven through the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is warning us from heaven through the Holy Spirit to not refuse. So you mentioned that he said that we will not escape if we reject him who warns from heaven, as the author says. Um, so reiterate again, what does it mean to reject him who warns from heaven? Yeah, the big danger here, and we've said this again and again in the book of Hebrews, is he's writing it to Jewish people who have made a profession of faith in Christ, but under pressure generally from Jewish unbelievers, Jewish authority figures, community leaders, um, rulers, I don't know, synagogue rulers, uh, people that can bring some misery into Jewish people's lives if they don't um, you know, conform to what they want, but they don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And so they're under pressure. These Jewish professors of faith in Christ are under pressure. They're being persecuted uh, to the end that they would reject Christ and go back to Old Covenant Judaism. And that rejection of Christ is similar to, as he said earlier, not crossing over the Jordan into the promised land, shrinking back through fear and unbelief, just like that generation did. And their bodies were scattered in the desert, as Paul says in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 10. And, you know, just terrifying image. So the idea here is, um, is more of rejecting the voice of him who speaks. And the idea here is of failing to believe that Jesus is the Christ, failing to trust in him as your Lord and Savior. That's what we're talking about here. And ultimately, everybody who rejects that message, you know, whether you're someone who is dabbling Christianity and are turning away or whether you just never receive the message, um, you will not escape the judgment of God. No, and it's terrifying here because we're dealing with somebody who can shake the earth with his voice, somebody who knows where we are, who has has uh, all power. In him we live and move and have our being. We cannot fight him. Are we stronger than he, as one of the prophets said? So there's no, there's no opposing him. So it's definitely a, a terrifying warning here about turning away from Christ. Let's talk about that shaking. He says, at that time, his voice shook the earth, obviously referring to Mount Sinai, the, the booming voice, the shaking of the ground. But now he has promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. So what future shaking of the earth and the heavens does the author refer to? Yeah, it's just an incredible thing. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord twists the oaks, Psalm 29. I mean, God's voice is a terrifying thing. And when God speaks and the people are terrified, that's just, just an overpowering experience. Um, but yeah, he's speaking very clearly of an earthquake uh, and I'll tell you something, when, when my wife and I were missionaries in Japan, we went through a major earthquake that resulted in the death of 7,000 people um, in, in Kobe in Japan. It was January of 1995, the great Hanshin earthquake it was called. It was terrifying. And the, the ground beneath our house shook so much that the toilet water sloshed out of the bowl. I mean, that's how vigorously the toilet was going side to side went for 40, 44 seconds, and you just feel utterly powerless. When the ground beneath you is shaking, there's nowhere to go. And so you can well imagine at Mount Sinai, when God shook 
uh, the ground beneath their feet, it very much tended toward what he wanted, which was bringing fear on the people, the fear of the Lord. But now, in this verse, he's saying there's a far greater shaking that's coming. He, not only the earth, but also the heavens, everything is going to be shaken. Now, he's quoting Haggai here, Haggai 2.6, and he's talking about, about how once more he is going to, to shake the, uh, the earth and the heavens, and, and the, the desired one, Christ, will come to his temple. And so the idea here is really of the second coming of Christ. I think we need to understand, and the author's already told us this at the beginning in, in uh, chapter 1, uh, he talked about the removal of all the created things, everything. Roll it it's, up like a scroll. Roll it up like a garment. Yeah, he's he's told he's he said that, and uh, he's quoting um, Psalm uh, one one o two, I think. Here, as I'm reading the footnote here, it says, "Let me just read the text." It's Hebrews one ten and following. In the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You'll roll them up like a robe, like a garment. They will be changed. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. So that's what he's talking about. So other texts mention this. Revelation chapter 6, when the, when the sixth seal was broken, then the sun, the moon, the stars fell to the earth. Uh, the earth was shaken, and the island and every mountain was removed from its place, and all the people cried out in terror, saying, The great day of the wrath of God and of the Lamb has come, and who shall be able to stand? Terrifying. So that's Revelation 6. Uh, then you've got also Second um, Peter 3, in which it says, Actually, the very elements out of which the universe is made are going to melt in the heat. So there's a, almost like you could imagine a thermonuclear dissolving of all elements to make way for the new heaven and new earth. And so it's just a terrifying thing. He says uh, there's a far greater shaking that's coming. And that means every created thing, every earthly thing will be removed. Everything from its place. There'll be nowhere to stand. If you're not standing in Christ at that point, you'll have no place to stand. Let's talk about how that idea of that everything is going to be removed and shaken that we can see. Uh, really should put our Christian life in perspective. Yeah, yeah. First of all, materialism itself just makes no sense because those things that are uh, material nature are all of them temporary. You know, what is seen is temporary, what is unseen is eternal. So it really does urge us to live for um, invisible spiritual realities and not for earthly things. To realize, as some say, but however much they say it, and we might not like the slogan, but it is really true, it's all going to burn. Everything, every physical thing is temporary, all of it. So the idea is don't build foundations on it. There are no lasting foundations. We're looking, Hebrews 11.10 says they're looking forward to a city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. So you look at that, that's what's, what's permanent, the idea of a city with foundations. But what we've got here on, on this earth, there's, you know, think about the, the, the days of, of the flood. I mean, where could you go? to escape the flood, one place, the ark. Nothing else was going to be dry after the flood came. You know, it covered the highest mountains to a depth of 100 feet, something like that. You know, it's just some massive thing. There's nowhere to go. This is going to be worse. I mean, it's not even going to, it'll just, the elements themselves are going to be uh, dissolved or melt in the heat. And so, you know, it's terrifying. So the idea here is every physical thing is temporary. So we should live for the kingdom of God and not earthly things. So... Speak about the kingdom of God, he says, and I'm going to ask you another question about the kingdom of God, but um, what is the thing that cannot be shaken? Mm -hmm. What does that mean? The kingdom that cannot be shaken is Christ's kingdom. Um, 
it's permanent. Uh, so the idea here would be, I, I guess I, I can't do any better than scripture. Uh, you picture in, in Daniel chapter 2 where there's this statue that represents human empires, the head of gold and chest and arms of silver and belly and thighs of bronze and legs of iron and feet partly iron, partly clay. And they represent succeeding empires. You know, the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire. It, it, it represents these things. And what happens is a stone is cut out, but not by human hands, and strikes the statue on its feet of clay. And the whole thing comes down like it's made of crystal. It's just like rubble down on, on the base. And then a wind comes and blows it all away. And it says, without leaving a trace. Now, that's the point. Nothing's left. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain that filled the whole earth. And that rock is Christ. That rock is Christ's kingdom. So the point is, and, and Nebuchadnezzar himself sees it at the end of, of, of uh, chapter 4, Daniel chapter 4. It says, his kingdom lasts forever and ever. There will be no successor. He never dies. He saw it clearly. His kingdom was temporary. Christ's kingdom lasts forever. So that's what I think it means that we are receiving a kingdom in Christ that will never be moved. It is a permanent kingdom, eternal kingdom. So synonymous with that would be Peter saying that we have an inheritance that is undefiled and unshaken, mm -hmm. you know, and kept in heaven Absolutely. for us, right? Absolutely. So everything in heaven, everything described, Revelation 21, 22, all of those things are permanent. Um, they're not going anywhere. Uh, or as Isaiah gives a picture uh, to the eunuch that keeps my, my word, I'll give him a name and a memorial in my temple that will never be uh, removed. Um, so there's a sense of a permanent place in the temple of God. Uh, the true temple, the spiritual temple that's being built through evangelism and missions will never be removed. Whereas Solomon's temple and then Herod's temple and all that, all of it's destroyed. It's gone. The author uses this phrase, uh, the kingdom of God, or the kingdom that cannot be shaken. And then he says, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Mm -hmm. I want to take a little side tangent and ask you, what is the kingdom of God? Mm. I think a lot of Christians hear this and have a, a vague sense of what it is. But can you give some clarity around this concept of the kingdom of God? Because this mm. is when John the Baptist came preaching. He said, repent for the kingdom is at hand. Yeah. So what is the kingdom of God? Well, first and foremost, the fundamental issue of any kingdom is the king. Right. That's why I said in, in Revelation 4, when John uh, saw a doorway open to heaven and he heard a voice saying, come up here and I'll show you what must take place after this. And he was in the spirit and he ascended uh, into, into heaven, into the heavenly realms. And the first thing he saw was a throne with someone seated on it. And as I preached in Revelation 4, I said that throne and the one seated on it is the central reality of the universe. And a throne is a place where a king reigns. So the idea is authority, power, the right to rule. So all authority, all delegated authority, it's, 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 uh, it's the God-ordained right to command. All right? So parents have that over their children. Okay? Govern governors and kings and police and all the authority figures, Romans 13, all authority comes from God. It's the God-ordained right to command. Well, the ultimate one with the right to command is God. And ultimately, our sin has been rebellion against his commands. We've broken his laws. We've disobeyed. We've been rebels. So when, he, when John the Baptist and then later Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is, hand, is at hand, he's saying, turn around in your mind, think differently, be transformed in your heart toward the king. Or even more powerfully, as 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, as though we are God's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us, we beg you, be reconciled to God. 
So the idea of reconciled is be in a right relationship with him as God. So just taking that idea and now applying it to the repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's like embrace the fact that he's king and you're not, that he has a throne and he has the right to command. Be willing, eager subject. Eager subject, slaves even, to, willing to obey everything he commands. It says in Revelation 22, 5, his servants will serve him or his slaves will serve him. He is, he's the ruler, he's the master. And when he tells you to do something, you should do it. And that's, you know, the Lord's prayer. May his will be done on earth in the same way with the same pattern and demeanor as it is in heaven. The angels don't push back at all. Whatever he says to do, they do. And so the idea here for the kingdom of God then, and this is the way I'd understand it, because I believe in God's absolute sovereignty even over rebels, over people who do not acknowledge him. He still rules over them, but that's not the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, when you enter the kingdom of God, it means that you're glad that God's the king. You, you find his yoke is easy and his burden is light. His yoke is his right to command you. You are submitted to his yoke. Your neck is under his yoke. He's leading you or making you go where he wants, but you don't find it burdensome. You find it delightful. You're glad that there's a king, that his name is Jesus. You're delighted to obey his commands. That's what the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God now, the here and now kingdom of God, is a spiritual realm where individual people have repented of their sins, their rebellion against the king and his laws, and have gladly, by the power of the Spirit, submitted themselves to his rule. They're delighted in it. They're happy about it. That's the kingdom of God. And in the end, when the kingdom is consummated, the entire kingdom will be made up of willing subjects. And, and nothing that's left. the prophetic language of how the, you know, the wicked will be cast out cast and they out. will never enter the gates of Jerusalem, things like that. Exactly. So that's the future where we're going. But right in the kingdom is definitely absolutely an already not yet reality. There, it's already here. When Christ came, the kingdom of God was in our midst. Um, but it's not yet here. So that we pray, may your kingdom come. So we are receiving. Now here it's a future sense. We're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. The idea really is of the new heaven, new earth, a future dominion where everything will be glorious and radiant. That's what we're getting. That's our inheritance. Right. So the last, uh, second to last verse says, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. And that's in, in gratitude for receiving his kingdom. So what is acceptable worship and what would be unacceptable? Yeah, it's a great, great word. First of all, we just begin, as you said, with thankfulness or gratitude. You know, because we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, simply let's be thankful. So I just want to just stop there for a moment and just say we should be thankful every single moment. Just thankful, thankful, thankful all the time. How you doing, Joel? I'm thankful. Andy, how you doing? I'm thankful. I'm just thankful. Why? Well, I'm receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. I mean, it never goes away. It never changes. You should never be found not thankful. <laughs> If you're a Christian, you should be thankful every moment because you're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. There are other New Testament ways to articulate why you should be thankful, but this language here is because I am receiving a kingdom that can never be shaken. Um, so thankfulness. And I'll tell you what, I just love being around thankful people. And conversely, it's difficult to be around thankless people, you know, people that are grumbling and complaining and, you know, frustrated. So uh, thankfulness is humble because you're thanking a person Right? It's very personal. You don't thank inanimate objects. You don't thank the Coke machine when it vends you, you know, a can of Coke or something like that. You just, you know, it's a machine. But you thank people because they have sacrificially loved you and given something to you. So we are coming back to God and we are saying thank you. The very thing the idolaters didn't do in Romans 1 where it says, although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. So for us, we start with gratitude, thankfulness, because we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. 
And then he says, let us worship God acceptably. Now, this is really important. Very important. As a matter of fact, I preached an entire sermon on this one concept here in these two verses. And it had to do with worship styles. Many churches struggle with worship styles. Contemporary, blended, traditional, choirs, you know, uh, contemporary Christian music, different things, you know, choruses, whatever. So there's all different patterns of worship, all right? But the centerpiece here of worship is us presenting ourselves to him as living sacrifices and worshiping him as God. So there is acceptable worship and there therefore must be not acceptable worship. So let me ask you, when you think of what the scripture would say, unacceptable New Testament worship, what would it, what would it be? I think of different examples of, of disobedience, whether it be Uzzah grabbing the ark in disobedience or Cain not giving the the best, you know, of, of what he had to offer, or God in Isaiah saying, "Stop bringing the sacrifices; they're repugnant to me." So this idea that we're we're showing up, you know, and I know worship involves the whole of life, not just church. But let's just take the service for example. Sunday morning, showing up and um, and your heart's not in it. Yeah, well, I mean, just zeroing on that. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So any outward show that's disconnected from an inner heart reality is repugnant to God. So I, I love that. And then anything, like you said, with Uzzah and all that, where it's we're disobeying him, we're doing things that are, are defiant uh, to God. It's interesting about Uzzah, too, is it's in the process of bringing the ark to Jerusalem, so a seemingly good thing that they would end up doing. And in the midst of it, he's disobedient. Yeah, so what I would say is just simply put, God carefully defines acceptable worship. He is meticulous in the Old Testament defining what they are to do and not do. As you mentioned with Uzzah, the issue was that God had given a prohibition or a command, a positive command and therefore a prohibition to everyone else. What sub-tribe of Levi were permitted to carry the ark and how they were to do it. So, But just look at all the instructions in the last what, 15 chapters of um, Exodus, which describes the tabernacle, the priest, uh, their vestments, everything. It's just meticulous. Even the recipe of the incense uh, and the anointing oil, it's just meticulous, meticulous uh, instructions. New Testament is much more free. There's not as many things defined, but we are to worship in spirit and in truth. Reverence and awe. Reverence and awe, spirit and truth would be a sense of the awe of God and of the, the majesty of God. And, and, and in spirit and truth, I think uh, most interpreters are right in putting the word spirit in lowercase s. So it has to do with your own demeanor. You're, you're into it. You're not hard, your heart is not far from um, but we, we know that the Holy Spirit also uh, is is vital in true acceptable worship. The Holy Spirit uh, in the midst of worship. That's important. So, But just the concept here from this verse is there is such a thing as acceptable worship and there is such a thing as unacceptable worship. So for us as New Testament believers, we don't need to do any of the animal sacrifice or any of the vestments or the tabernacle. That's all been fulfilled. But we are going to worship God, Almighty God, through Jesus on the basis of Jesus' finished work on the cross by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's acceptable worship. Now, there's other issues here that we need to talk about. Um, many churches struggle with what's 
sadly called worship wars and you got different generations of people that want different things and people get pretty upset with each other and we were making some changes here at First Baptist Church uh, making changes in our worship style and it was hard for some people and I wanted to make a differentiation in terms of corporate worship patterns of corporate worship between those things that are timeless they never change and those things that are temporary uh, those things that are more culturally bound or time bound and so those things that are timeless would be certain things that are described in the New Testament, such as the public reading of Scripture, preaching, teaching, things like that, singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, the ordinances, Lord's Supper, and baptism, and uh, the taking of, of money, of offerings, of collections for the poor and needy and for the uh, sustaining of the church and its ministry, various other things like that. And these elements... Uh, what some people would call the regulative principle, they say that the Bible regulates what New Testament worship is, they would agree that it's whatever the Bible has laid out that we must do. Regulative principle people would then say, we must do these things and only these things. We have no freedom beyond that. Whereas uh, the normative principle people following Luther would say anything not prohibited is okay. So there's some debates that, that go back and forth. For me, what I wanted to say is let's, let's talk about just what's timeless and then those things that are temporary. So what would be temporary? The, that would be the kind of instruments that we use, like pipe organ, let's say, um, or, or certain patterns like choir, or, um, or even what we have now with contemporary. We have a lot of times a drum kit and electric guitars, acoustic guitars, other things. That, that pattern at some point will end, and there'll be other instruments and other styles of music that will come and take its place. I don't know what it is. Accordions and bagpipes. I have no idea what the future holds. Probably not, but who knows? Um, but those patterns change all over the world. They're different in different uh, cultures, uh, different, different tribes and languages and people. They have different ways of worshiping. They're going to use scriptural language, but they can have different chord progressions, different sounds to the music. African, sub-Saharan African music sounds very distinctive and rhythmic, and it's very beautiful. Uh, Asian music will sound a little bit different. It's just there's no one style of worship that's acceptable to God. Now, what I argued in that sermon, Timeless and Temporary, is those things that are timeless must never change. Never. There always must be expository preaching or preaching that flows from scriptural, scriptural truth. Uh, you can preach topical sermons that are scriptural. That's fine. You know, it's biblical. Um, prayer. You know, all of those patterns I just said. Uh, public reading of scripture, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, all of that. That must never change. But everything else not only may change, but you could almost make a case that, that it must change at a certain point. That if you hold on to temporary things as though they're timeless, you're going to end up being a slave to traditionalism. And that ends up being very damaging. So on the basis of this, we need to distinguish between those kinds of worship that are timeless and those that are temporary. Yeah. As you're explaining this, I'm my mind kind of just zoomed out on the whole book. And, and it's almost like the author at the end is, you know, we've talking about this group of Christians that are in danger of going back to Judaism. Yeah. And it's almost like at the end he's saying, you know, get your eyes off your situation. Look at God. Look at the coming kingdom. Look what you're going to receive and worship him. And don't worry about what persecution you're going to face in the market tomorrow. Yeah, I don't know that the folks that were struggling with the changes that we made at FBC found any kind of solace in this. But I wanted to say, based on the book of Hebrews, no generation of Christians has ever had so many significant changes in their worship style as the first century Jewish Christians. They had to give up on all the old covenant patterns. They were obsolete now. 
obsolete. Imagine being told temple worship is obsolete while the temple is still standing, right? Animal sacrifice is obsolete while it was still being done by unbelieving Jews. And that's probably very hard for families too if they were following the once a year, you know, pilgrimage yeah. to Jerusalem, bring sacrifice, you know, one week for the Feast of Don't Booth. need to do that it's anymore. Like all that's gone. It's done. You don't need to do the Passover anymore if you don't want to. If you do, fine, but just understand you don't have to. I mean, it's like, wow, radical changes. But those things were temporary. They were uh, fulfilled. The time had had um, had passed. So uh, it's it's hard, and leaders of churches need to be sensitive and all that. But just just to meditate on the timeless and temporary aspects of worship is beneficial. It's helpful for everyone. The last verse in this section just says, "For our God is a consuming fire." There's, this is incredibly deep and incredibly terrifying. But just how is this very helpful? for the Hebrew Christians to hear this one, wow. more, one more time. Yeah, Joel, first of all, I just want to say, and you've heard me say this a number of times, but I'll say it here because it's relevant. It's coming right from this text. There are two images of, of God, Almighty God, that are vital for us to hold simultaneously, and they seem contradictory, but we've got to hold them. And the first is this one, our God is a consuming fire, and the other is that our God is the father of the prodigal son. You know, And those are just very dim- different images of God. So concerning the second God, the father of the prodigal son, we have a gracious, compassionate, loving, committed, emotional father who yearns after wayward children, who leaves the 99 on the hills and goes to look for the one that wandered off, who who sends his son to die for them, who is ready at any moment to welcome repentant sinners back anytime. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. He loves us with a love we cannot measure. Um, he didn't spare his own son. That's the father of the prodigal son, the love of God. But then you've got this image of our God as a consuming fire. There you have the holiness of God, the justice of God, the wrath of God, the fact that God just doesn't play, uh, that we should not be arrogant, think we can sin with a high hand and that God, you know, God owes us anything. There is a healthy fear of God. And the image here is, is overpowering. God is a consuming fire. And so uh, I tend to think of the sun here, uh, the S-U-N, the sun up in the sky, uh, which is 93 million miles away, which um, science tells us has a a surface temperature of 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit, 10,000 degrees. Um, NASA has sent a probe, I think the closest uh, probe that has ever uh, ever, uh, approached the, the sun is something like eight million miles away from the sun and then the temperature became too hot but uh, I remember when I was doing some research for the sermon on this text they uh, actually were what was in works was a a probe that could get four million miles away from the sun temperature 2700 degrees Fahrenheit it's just at the limits of what material science on planet earth can handle Theoretically, the core temperature of the sun is 27 million degrees Fahrenheit, consuming fire. And God made the sun. You could almost say that God laughs at the little sun compared to him. So that's terror. I mean, God, if he wants you consumed, you're consumed. So then you have the image of the burning bush where there's this fire, but the but bush is not consumed. And so the idea of how the, who of us, as it says in Isaiah, can dwell with a consuming fire, who of us can dwell with everlasting burnings, well, we will. We'll dwell with this God forever in intimate fellowship with God. It's an incredible image. So long story short, what I would say is our God is a consuming fire should put us in a healthy fear of God in his reaction to sin 
It should make us holy. It should make us yearn to be holy. He is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. Do you have any more comments you want to add on this section before we finish the podcast? Well, the verses here are very rich and powerful, so not many verses, but a lot of deep ideas. I guess, first of all, I would just say on that last image, you know, we all as Christians tend to favor or lean toward one or the other of these seemingly contradictory images. They're not contradictory, but they are very different and difficult for us. So if you tend to be very presumptuous and confident and not very careful in how you live and you know, watch anything you want and eat anything you want and go anywhere you want because you're free and you're forgiven and all that, you probably need to meditate more on our God as a consuming fire. Um, so I would say if, if you think that the biggest problem in the church is legalism, you probably need to meditate more on our God as a consuming fire. And if you think that the biggest problem you know, because you're the opposite. You're probably a licensed person. <laughs> and if you think, on the other hand, that the biggest problem, you know, in the church is license, everybody doing whatever they want and all that, you're probably struggling with legalism. And you probably need to meditate more on God's forgiveness and God's tender love for his children. But we need to meditate on both. And so I would just say, let the image of our God as a consuming fire drive away any unholiness. Let us perfect holiness in the fear of the Lord, as it says in other verses. The rest of this is just a, a warning that we not refuse and that we come continually come close to God through faith in Christ. Well, that was episode 39 in the book of Hebrews. Please join us next time for episode 40, where we discuss the ethical implications of the new covenant from Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 through 6. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and God bless you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.